good to be back in church with everybody again. Glad you guys are enjoying each other. Uh, find your places. Go ahead, find your Bibles, and you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're getting into that in just a second. Before we get started, let me just say, for those of you that are aware, a lot of you are aware that we are taking the initial steps of working towards starting a new church in Columbus, Ohio area. And uh, we've been going every Sunday night for over a month now. We'll be going back again tonight. Just, just keep that in prayer. Um, you'll probably hear more about that next week when we have our prayer first meeting as well. But uh, just be praying about that and um, what God will be doing there. There's a lot of people that are pretty excited about it. And so a um, team of people go down every Sunday night. And tonight will be no exception for that as well. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. We're starting a new series here. I would really like to, I was thinking when I was putting this together that I wanted to start this off with a little dramatic statement like, I need you all to really listen to me today. <laughs> and then it dawned on me that I got nothing for you. And the truth is, you don't need to listen to me. You need to listen to the Lord. And hopefully I can get out of His way and hopefully He'll say something that'll make a difference in your life because... Let me just tell you, you, you are not unaware of the fact that we are living in perilous times. And I mean literally, because people's lives, people's personal property, civil, human, constitutional rights are in peril, like never before. You can turn off the news and ignore it, it's not going away. It's coming. And let me tell you, if you're a Christian, it's coming for you. It's coming for you. This is the world in which we live. And it shouldn't surprise any of us that just in the course of taking the Bible as it comes, the section of Scripture in the middle of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians that we find, we find the Apostle Paul lived in very similar circumstances. So the book of 2 Corinthians, by way of just review very quickly, is, is a very personal view into the life and the personal ministry of the Apostle Paul. And chapter number one's theme of personal ministry and, and the learning and understanding of how to be an effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, the theme of chapter one is suffering. And the Lord comes right out of the gate with the issue of suffering because... Well, in order to be an effective minister, there's going to be suffering involved. And we looked at that last week. But starting in verse 8 and going down to verse 14 today, we're going to see a very dark time in Paul's life. And the Lord showed him how to navigate that time properly. So the title I've chosen for today is How God Uses Suffering in Ministry. Just like it's always darkest just before the dawn, so it is getting darker in this world by the hour. Are you interested in learning how you can navigate your perilous circumstances today? Let me tell you what. There's a lot of things I don't understand. There's a lot of things. I'm not just being spiritually humble. I legitimately don't understand a lot of things. But let me tell you one thing I do understand. You want to know how to navigate your life in any circumstance of life? You stick with the Bible. That's what you do. You stick with the Bible. And where you can find your direction in the Scriptures, you're going to find yourself on sound footing. 
Because if indeed we are living in the very last moments of the church age, it is also not just perilous, it is one of the, if not the most amazing time in history to be able to be alive. Because we may be the generation that sees the rapture of the church, his glorious appearing, our blessed hope. But we're going to need to know how to navigate the times in which we live, and, and I think we can learn that from today's passage. So if you'll follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse number 8. We'll go down to verse 14. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God which raiseth the dead who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we've had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what you read or acknowledge, and I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end, as also you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. There's actually a lot to glean from this, so let's go to the Lord, ask him to be our teacher, and we'll go ahead and jump right in. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in this passage of Scripture, we do ask that that we would just be emptied of ourselves, filled with your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would be our teacher, that he would teach us your word and make the specific application that each of us need to hear. Lord, we're all struggling with different things. We all live in some similar circumstances, but we're all struggling with different things in our lives. But Lord, you're eternal. You're perfect. You, you can speak specifically to each and every one of us individually. And I need to hear from you. And everybody needs to hear from you. They don't need to hear from me. So I pray that I would be out of your way. I pray that your word would reign supreme. I pray that you would be glorified as we learn and understand how to respond in such a time as this. Thank you for the example of the human being, the Apostle Paul, who followed your lead and understood how to, how to answer and how to live his life. And I pray that we would do what you tell us to do, and that's follow his example. So I pray you'd use these scriptures to teach us how to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, the first thing we're going to look at is the scenario, and the scenario that we find ourselves in here is despair. It's despair. That's where Paul's starting out. He says, we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch as that we despaired even of life. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know some things about the trouble that he went through when he was in Asia. Now, Asia, as it's typically referred to in the New Testament most specifically, is what we would typically call Asia Minor. It would really be the area of the country now called Turkey. And actually, Paul traveled through Asia Minor in each of his three missionary journeys. The events that he's referring to at this point... I believe most likely come from Acts chapter 19, which is his third missionary journey. 
And you say, well, how do we know that? Well, the reason I would land on that is a couple of reasons. One, he mentions Asia a lot. He's in the city of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. But since he's now telling them in this second letter about this, it, it likely had to have happened after Acts 18, because in Acts 18 is when historically, chronologically, he was actually in Corinth. If he had it happened before that, he probably would have told them when he was there. But now he's writing to them because it happened after he wasn't in Corinth anymore. So we're going to jump into Acts chapter 19, and we're going to do kind of a, a quick review of some of the events of what was going on back there so we can get an idea of what was happening to Paul to have him make such an amazing statement in verse number 8. And so if you look in Acts chapter 19, we're going to start in verse number 8 where it says this. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks." Paul was involved in a revival. Paul was involved in spreading the word of the Lord in, in the time. Think about it. Think about 2,000 years ago and the ease of communication spread. Um, in the space of two years, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 18. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. You see, the people heard the word of the Lord and it affected their lives and they got saved and it changed them and it says that they brought forth these deeds. They showed these deeds of true repentance. The fruit of genuine repentance is a changed life. And these people that were involved in these curious arts, they brought a lot of their books, obviously evil things influencing them the wrong way, and they burned them. And the value of the things they cast aside because of their new life in Christ were 50,000 pieces of silver back in that economy. I mean, this is legitimate revival in Ephesus. That's what's going on. So, next then, a couple verses down, we'll keep reading. It results in what we begin to see in verse 22. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way, that way meaning Christianity, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. So Demetrius is a silversmith, and he made all his wealth by selling silver idols for idolatrous worship in the temple of Diana. And when people are getting saved, they're not buying the idols anymore because they're not idolaters anymore. And so Demetrius is losing all his money, and in the following verses in 24, 25, 26, 27, he goes and tells all the other smiths that, hey, we're losing our cash, and we're not, we're not going to have as much business as we used to have. So pick it up in verse 28. 
And when they heard these sayings, in other words, Demetrius and his pals that were losing their income, when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. So what do you know? Somebody who is losing income, somebody who is losing influence, is inciting a riotous mob, which in turn posed a threat to Paul and to his others that were working with him. Well, what can we learn from such a thing? Well, what we can learn is that revival leads to resistance. Revival leads to resistance. I mean, right when they were experiencing revival, to the extent that there were fruit of repentance and people giving up wealth and burning these things and their books and not buying idols anymore and confessing their sins and... Well, then the resistance started. And it says that there was no small stir, which undoubtedly relates to the fact that they had previously no small gain by selling their silver idols to Diana. You know that if you're actively walking with God and sharing the gospel and standing against sin and living a godly life, there will be persecution. We've visited many times the verse that I don't particularly care for, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the more the people were living godly, the more the persecution ramped up as well. And maybe we can draw the conclusion, I'm not sure, but it seems as though we can draw the conclusion that to the extent that you will live godly, actively minister the gospel, bear fruit, equals the extent to which you will suffer persecution. Which if that's true, then maybe the lazy, selfish, inactive Christians, well, they'll fare just fine. But this, you know, the Bible is, is so polite in the way that it phrases things. The Bible uses language that it's not like the language we use. When the Bible says, listen, when it says there was no small stir. It doesn't mean that, you know, it was a, it was a tad confusing. No, it was, it was a big deal. There was, that's, that's God's way of saying big trouble. Big trouble. In fact, it was so bad, and the reason you know that, it was so bad that Paul said that he felt pressed out of measure literally burdened beyond the level that human strength can endure. And it goes on, it says, so much so that he despaired even of life. 
Now, I do need for you to understand that when it says that Paul despaired even of life, in no way whatsoever, and contextually in no way whatsoever, does that mean Paul was contemplating suicide? That's never a solution. It's never available for you to do. It's not anything that's not a way out in any case at any time, no matter what. But the word despair literally means hopeless. He was hopeless. It means that he had lost all hope that he might make it out of there alive. Or he may have been so discouraged that he began to wonder, "Ah, why bother? Why bother? You know, Job felt this way after he lost everything. Right? Job chapter 3 starts out and it says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. What's his day? Well, he's talking about the day that he was born. His birthday is that's his day. Verse 2 And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There's a man child conceived. In other words, if this is my life, I'd have been better off if I was never born. You ever felt that way? You ever have the pressures of this world build up so much on you and the despair is so heavy in your life that you wonder why to bother? Why bother pressing on? You're pressed beyond the measure of your human strength to be able to resist anymore. These are dark days. I don't know if it encourages you. It actually encourages me that the Apostle Paul felt that way sometimes. Makes me feel a little bit better when I feel that way. Because I just want to tell you something. I've felt that way. In fact, I've felt that way multiple times. Listen, we all wrestle with our flesh from time to time. We all have trouble in the flesh. Every single day the flesh tries to get you to sin. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about special times in history when it really mounts up. If you're a member of this church, you may have heard me in the past make reference to a time in my life that was very, very dark. It was the year 2000, and we were serving in Albania. I'd been there eight years, and I was so discouraged at that time. And virtually nobody outside of my wife and one or two good friends, nobody knew that I was thinking of quitting. And really what it was was the pressure of the world system was just getting too much for me to handle. I mean, daily life in that environment at that time, for whatever reason, I, I, I know I was wrong on a lot of levels. The point is it was mounting on me so that I was pressed beyond measure. I ended up having a terrible attitude. I couldn't see myself continuing there anymore. I began to think up how I could make excuses to get out of that ministry and come back to the States and not be blamed for being a quitter, like I was working on my plan. And, and, I, and I don't want to give you all the details. It's not necessary for this conversation. I want you to know that I've been in places like this in my life before, and, and I think I've came to understand at least a little of what the Apostle Paul said when we referred to in the last couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, And verse 26, on that long list of things that he suffered, it says among them that he was in perils of robbers, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city. This is the world system. 
These were the things that I was feeling. These kinds of perilous times back in 2000. I despaired even of life. I wasn't sure why it was worth going on anymore. But praise the Lord, he, he helped me. And it took some time and he was gentle and he was patient and he allowed me to vent, he allowed me to scream, he allowed me to cry and eventually he began to whisper to me what the answer really was and we got through it. You know, I, I went through another time like that here in 2015 and I was again discouraged and I again considered quitting. Only this time, I compare it more to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, in perils among false brethren. When two former pastors conspired against me and my family to remove me from being your pastor and place themselves in charge and actively work this crowd to divide this church, I felt pressed beyond measure and despaired even of life. And I want you to know that today, 2020, I'm starting to get overwhelmed again. But this time it's not the world system and this time it's not false brethren. This time it's the devil. Because the devil is currently and systematically closing in all of the walls so that churches and Christians can't operate anymore. I spent far too much time trying to figure out what's going on and how we need to prepare for it, if we even can prepare for it. Like I told you before, there is a lot I do not understand, but I understand this. The current events going on in the world today are primarily targeted to stop Christians and churches from worshiping God and serving Him openly. That's frustrating. That's depressing. And I need your help. We'll see how we can help in just a minute. But let me give you the spoiler alert. Let me tell you what we're supposed to be doing. And although I know this, it's hard sometimes to just, you know, get it going. So, you know, we pray for each other, right? But the answer comes a few chapters later in 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 7 and 8, it says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Right? We're perplexed, but not in despair. We shouldn't let ourselves get to that point. So although the scenario in Paul's life, and, well, I would argue in our lives, is despair, well, the good news is, number two, there's a solution. And the solution is deliverance. It's deliverance. Somebody say amen. amen. Yeah, uh, that was a good spot for an amen. Okay. Verse number nine says, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead. I want you to notice that verse number nine begins with the word but, not and. It doesn't say that Paul despaired even of life and he had the sentence of death in himself. If that's what it said, then you might conclude that he was deciding that he was going to die, that he was going to take it upon himself and do that. But it doesn't say and. It says but, and but presents a contrast. 
right? It's a contrast. Paul says, man, I was pressed beyond measure. I despaired even of life, but it dawned on me. I realized something. We have the sentence of death in ourselves. A sentence is an official judgment passed by a judge. And there already exists an official judgment passed down on our lives as born-again believers. And we find it in several places in the Scripture. For example, Colossians 3, 2 and 3, Set your affections on things above, not on things in the earth. Why? For ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That's the sentence of death. It's already been passed. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They're not yours anymore. You're dead. Positionally, in Christ, our life doesn't exist anymore. That's Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I. Yet Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. Yes, I continue to live, but it's not me doing it. I'm not the one doing the living. It's Christ living through me. So the only answer, the only solution to the attitude that life is a waste, this is hopeless, is to die to yourself. It's to die to yourself. Then you find new life. 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection, says in verse 30 and 31, And why stand we in jeopardy, peril, every hour? I protest by your rejoicing. You're rejoicing in the fact that I'm in peril, by the way. That I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. I die to this stuff every day. And then he goes on in the next verse, 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there wasn't this truth of the resurrection, if it wasn't true that my life is already dead and, I, and I'm hid with Christ and God, if it wasn't true that my salvation is eternally secure, if it wasn't true that this ministry is worth it, why would I bother torturing myself? If none of this was true eternally, well, let's just party it up and have the best time we can while we got a chance. Paul said, if there's no resurrection, if all I have in this life is this life, and I live it like I'm living it, he said, we're of all men most miserable. Don't give me your pious spiritual attitude that, well, if all I had was Jesus in this life and there was no eternal life, it'd still be worth it all. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Unless you're just so carnal, you never walk with the Lord anyway. So you're never persecuted. But why would you live godly if you don't have the gold ring at the end? Why? And that's what Paul's saying. 
death to ourselves, in case you're wondering the terminology, is literally nothing more than just a full and a total surrender of your life and will to the Lord. That's verse 9, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Oh, not yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. So in other words, full surrender to the Lord in trouble is your deliverance. The very attitude, the very idea that you can just lay your entire life and all of your hopes and dreams and aspirations and, and, and 401k and all, whatever it is that's bothering you, you can lay it on the altar and say, I am dead. I'll stop complaining because dead men don't complain. My life is the Lord's and the Lord can do with it as he will. And if he will that I perish, I perish. And if he will that I get back up, then he'll get me back up. But I surrender it all. And once you make the decision... You are delivered, whether the circumstances change or not. Full surrender is your deliverance. It gives you the peace that passes understanding. It gives you the calm in the midst of the storm. So back in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 10, it says, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Or, Romans 8, 36, As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Just stop there for a second. The sheep get in the little gates and the little rows and they're bringing them down the path and one after another they're slaughtering them for the meat and the hide and whatever it is they do. And we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And verse 37, Paul goes on in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, Nay, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He doesn't say believing God enough to avoid these things. We are more than conquerors. In the midst of the sheep going through the gate one after another to be slaughtered, we're still more than conquerors. Why? Because I'm, not, I'm already dead. It's Christ that's living in me. This is God's promise to you. The solution, God's promise to you is deliverance. And that's verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Did you notice that it comes in three ways? Did you notice it comes at three different times? Did you see that past, present, future, right? Who delivered us in the past and doth deliver in the present and will yet deliver in the future? You see that? So let's break it down. Letter A, the past deliverance is from the penalty of sin. Who delivered us from so great a death. So great a death is the second death. The second death is defined in Revelation 21 and verse 8 as a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. The second death is hell. 
He delivers us from hell. At the moment that you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, at the moment you surrender your life to him and you're saved, well, he has, immediately, he has then delivered you from so great a death. This is your victory over the devil. Because the devil can't get your soul anymore. You've been saved. Jesus delivers from the power of death and and he delivers us from the hand of the devil. Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them, there it is, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Bondage to sin and its penalty. Hell. Your whole life before salvation. You might not realize it. You're in bondage. Jesus died and he went to hell for you. And he came out with the keys of death and hell. Revelation chapter 1. Even if you could end up in hell. And you can't, Christian. Even if you could. He's got the keys. He'll let you out. But he doesn't even need it. Letter B, present deliverance. Well, the present deliverance is from the power of sin. It says, and doth deliver. Present tense. This is your victory over the flesh. This is your daily deliverance from sin's power in your life today as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a thing called the law of sin and death. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, and verse number 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Go down to verse number 6. For to be carnally minded is death. Carnal means flesh. This is the battle against your flesh. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Lord promised not only that did he take care of that deliverance, he promises to continue to deliver you every single day as you live your life today. Psalm 56, verse 13. For, though the, for thou hast delivered my soul from death. There you go, past tense. Wilt not thou deliver my feet from falling, present tense, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Man, he took care of the big one in the past. Am I to think that he's not going to continue to take care of us? God didn't save you eternally and then just leave you alone to figure it out on your own. Uh, good luck. Hey, buddy, I got your, you know, the end is good, but in the meantime, you know, I'm rooting for you. I don't know. He didn't, listen, that's the Big Bang Theory. And God has nothing to do with the Big Bang, whether it be in creation or in salvation. That's not how he operates. He's presently active all the time, even right now. Even until you get to, letter C, your future deliverance. Well, that's the deliverance from the very presence of sin. In whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. He's going to deliver us from this body of death. This is physical death. This is the first death. This is the separation of your soul from your body. Paul says in Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of of this death, this is your victory over the world. This is the rapture of the church. 
at the rapture of the church, we get glorified bodies and sin will be present no more. And the days are dark and the times are perilous and life is rough these days. And it may get worse and probably will before it gets better, but when it gets better, it's way better. It's the day y'all ought to be really excited about. Now, I get it. The judgment seat of Christ is, you know, it's a blip on the radar that won't be maybe great. But it's still worth it. No sin in your very presence anymore. Can't even, you can't, I, listen, I don't mean to judge you. You can't even imagine it. I can't even imagine it. We're so used to living in this filthy world. So there's three deliverances that are promised, right? If you're saved, the past deliverance, it's already done, right? And the future deliverance, it's absolutely sure. But that present one, that present one, man, that one depends on whether you're going to walk in the spirit of the flesh. That's not guaranteed. It, the option is guaranteed. The offer is provided. But whether you take advantage of it, see, that's up to you. That's up to you. There is some good news. You don't have to do it all alone. Not just is the Lord obviously there to help us, but there is other help, and that's verse 11. Ye also helping together by prayer for us. That for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. We need to help each other. And so your deliverance from trouble is helped by others who pray. Of course it is. Prayer brings help. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Romans 8.26, likewise the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us and it's a help. James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Prayer helps. Philippians 1.19, Paul says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. How? Through your prayer. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul's going to have some deliverance in his life. Why? Because people are praying for him. People are shouldering the load together with him and praying to God. When you pray for somebody fervently, passionately, continuously, and when you do it with a righteous life, remember, the sins and iniquities that you hide in your heart and in your life, they hinder God's ability to hear your prayers. Psalm 66, 18. You have to have a righteous life, and you need to pray fervently, and when that happens, your prayer avails much. 
It causes results. It helps. God moves. We all know people that are struggling. We constantly get prayer requests. We're always praying for people. We know people who are asking for prayer. And I know that there are times when you say, I'll pray for you, and sometimes you don't. I've been guilty of that. We've all been guilty of that. And when sometimes you do pray, sometimes you just go through a list and read them, and maybe it's not so fervent. I don't know. I'm not judging. I'm just saying sometimes we kind of gloss over it, and sometimes people are hurting, and you want to help, but there's nothing you can do to help. And they say, just pray. And you say, well, I'll pray, but I want to bring a meal. I want to help somehow. Y'all, do not, do not ever allow yourself to discount the legitimate help that is prayer. The right kind of effective prayer that avails much. But it's got to be fervent and it's got to come from a righteous life. And it helps. So the solution of deliverance then will bring our last point, and that's what I'm calling the satisfaction. That's delight. That's delight. He starts off in verse number 12 and he says, For our rejoicing is this. Well, it, well, holy cow, his, his attitude changed, didn't it? Like he was pressed beyond measure and despairing even of life. Now he's rejoicing, right? I mean, we have read the verses in the Scripture. It is possible for rejoicing to result from suffering. We've seen that before in places like James chapter 1. In verse number two, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, lacking nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack anything, because the Lord is my shepherd, right? Count it all joy when you go through those things, because it's the necessary process for God to show you that he can provide everything. And this joy, well, it's realized in two ways, as we see in these verses of Scripture. The first one, letter A, is our response. And that's no compromise. No compromise. Our rejoicing is this. What's that? The testimony of our conscience. That in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you would. Our conversation, that word conversation, if you're not familiar with it, as the King James Bible uses it, does not just mean the words that you speak. The word conversation literally means your behavior. It's the life that you lead. And we know that that shouldn't be a strange way to interpret that and understand that. It's how the Bible uses it. But, but even in our vernacular, we say actions speak louder than words. And when the Bible uses the word conversation, it refers to the fact that your whole life is communicating. It's not just the words that you say. Talk is cheap. So our conversation is our behavior. And Paul is saying that you can rejoice in the midst of trials and persecutions any time that the testimony of your conscience confirms that you're behaving yourself properly. Anytime you can know that your response in the midst of this present evil world is biblical. Anytime your conscience bears witness and just 
confirms and consoles your spirit that you are doing what you are asked to do, you can rejoice in that. No compromise. No bowing the knee to Baal. No giving in to any of that stuff. You stand for the Lord. So in the sight of God, as an individual Christian, your behavior is godly, it's righteous, it's biblical. All the while continuing to reach out and to minister to others. Because we had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you, Word. We continue to minister outward. So the circumstances are closing in. The pressure is mounting. But you didn't give in. You didn't give in to the pressure of the day and the spirit of the age or the culture. You remained biblical. You acted with integrity. You search your own heart. You have a clear conscience before God that you did what you knew to do sincerely, humbly, not because you're so cool, by the grace of God, by the grace of God. The psalmist, Psalm 50, verse 22. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. The salvation literally meaning the deliverance. You're in trouble? Order your conversation aright. I'll deliver you. I'll deliver you. Listen, when you can see your life with no compromise in the midst of these trials, that's worth rejoicing over. That in of itself is worth rejoicing over, right? Especially if you find yourself in circumstances where it seems as though no matter what you do, nobody else seems to care. You, you can only affect change in you. And then just pray that God might use it. But if he did, but if he does use it, well, that's our second form of rejoicing, and that's letter B, their response. So your response is no compromise. Their response would be no confusion. When you can arrange your own conversation aright, the chances are much higher that you'll also have an effective ministry to others. And when you do, they will acknowledge it. And that's the word we see in verses 13 and 14. We write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. And I trust that ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. So to acknowledge, I think you understand, just means to admit, to recognize, to agree, to confess to affirm something to be true. When you acknowledge something, you agree, you confess, you, you admit it to be true, well, there's no confusion in your mind there, then, is there? That when their response is no confusion, they're acknowledging truth, right? And there's a couple of things to acknowledge, and we saw them in these verses. Let me give you a couple of cross-references. 1 Corinthians 14 37, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, he, Paul says, let him acknowledge 
that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. So similar to what he said in the end of verse um, 13, we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. He's basically saying you, you acknowledge the fact that the things that we're giving you, well, that's, that's the word of God. It's not our word. It's the word of God. And then compare 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 18. We've seen this before. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. I'm glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. So we acknowledge that the writings of Paul are the word of the Lord, and we acknowledge the fact that fellow laborers in the gospel, and not to exclude the emphasis on the leaders in the gospel, like Stephanus and these guys that they've addicted themselves to the ministry, Man, these guys have really helped you. You need to acknowledge that. You need to acknowledge the fact that they gave their lives to help you. So this is their rejoicing. So they can rejoice, and, and Paul and his team can be the target of their rejoicing. Why? Because they got the message, they acknowledged it, they received it, their lives were changed, and they are thankful for the men that God used to bring it to them. Just like Paul is thankful that his efforts are not in vain, and when he put forth the word of God, people actually responded. Just like when you engage in ministry and you work and you labor and you suffer as a result, when people actually respond and their lives are changed eternally, it's all worth it. And they become your rejoicing as well. And that's what he sees. Paul said the same thing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. And that's when that rejoicing comes, in the day of the Lord Jesus. In the day when the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. This rejoicing, this delight comes at the rapture of the church. That's when it comes. So, when all the suffering is over, when all our work here on earth is done, and we have the view of Revelation 21, 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And you find yourself in that spot, and you begin to look around. And what do you see? You see what's described in Revelation 7, 9, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Yeah. 
And you look around and you see all that. And you recognize, hey, some of those people are here because of me. Some of these people are here worshiping the Lord in eternity, in glory, in righteous eternity. Because I took one for the team. I took it in the neck so they could get the word. It makes it worth it all. The days may be dark now. You may never see the fruit of your labor today on the earth. But the day of the Lord Jesus will declare it. Hang in there, man. The scenario may be despair, but the solution is deliverance. And the ultimate satisfaction is delight. Psalms 30 says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Don't hope in this world. This world's got nothing for you. Don't hope in politics. Don't hope in the things this world has to offer. Don't trust in yourself. You've got nothing. Trust in the Lord. Psalm 121. I'll lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The Lord of life has given us the book of life so that we can have life and have it more abundantly. You don't want to quit now. We're right at the end. We've got to hang on tight. We've got to help each other through this thing. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we...